Today on the podcast, one of the most creatively innovative artists I've ever had the pleasure of working with and just a great all-around guy, Dan Davidson. Dan, thanks for being on. Hey, man. Yeah, thanks for having me. This is uh, this is my first official podcast appearance, I think. I think it's the first time I've ever been on one. You look very official with that microphone and the headphones oh, and everything, so... <laughs> I, I would say you look like a veteran. Yeah, you yeah, could have just uh, you could have just pretended you were. I wouldn't have known the difference. It's my fourth podcast of the morning here. Uh, <laughs> glad I could pencil you in. <laughs> I'm glad you could join me uh, with all seriousness. Um, let's talk a little bit about how well you've been able to adapt uh, through the pandemic, um, particularly about the Dieselbird Music Festival which took off, became very popular right out of the gate, it was really the first festival of its kind, um, especially in Canada, or at least in the Canadian country music scene. Um, but tell us a little bit about the impetus for that idea of, of rolling out a digital music festival and um, and how you put it together in, in such short order. Yeah, it was, we had to move so quick. It was, you know, like, I think the shutdown was originally something like March 13th or something. And um, yeah, you know, our... In, within a couple of weeks, I, I felt like a lot of us artists and music fans were getting super saturated with the people in their living room sitting with an acoustic guitar, those kind of performances. And those are great, too, because, you know, fans want to see the personality of their favorite artists and everything like that. But I just figured that there's got to be a way to do it a little bit bigger and a little bit more pointed. And uh, so Travis Nesbitt, the guy I work with on everything for videos and, and branding and kind of creative ideas he's, he's a bit of a partner in the dan davidson sort of brand i guess um we had a call and we were just talking about how we could put together some sort of a digital music festival that that had a vibe and had a brand and and yeah so we came up with this concept roughly as the, <laughs> it was the day that i'd canceled my my trip to mexico we were on our way to the airport and got the word and we're like ah better set a good example turn the car around and <laughs> <laughs> it was a tough day, so I was glad we were able to get creative out of it. But um, were you literally in the car? On yeah, the way like to Mexico. We were, we were literally packed, and we were just packing up and uh, or to the yeah. airport, obviously, to fly to Mexico. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's been a long drive, but uh, yeah, yeah. So that was a real, a real bummer, and it was it definitely set the pace for things. So I, I think a big part of the Dieselbird show was um, just trying to get our brains set for how it was going to be for the next year or you know foreseeable future. But essentially, when the the idea was was together with with Travis, we started to think about how we could pull this off. And um, already, Travis and I had been talking with Chuck Ehrman, who uh, used to run uh, the CRE out there in Camrose, the the grounds where Big Valley goes on, as you know. Um, we had uh, already sort of been planning this festival idea that we had called Dieselbird, and it was basically just like an alternative lifestyle type festival. You know, it was going to be more tattoos and, and subculture and punk rock and craft beer and all these kinds of things coming together, mixing some worlds a little bit. But we loved the concept of that, the edginess of it and the thinking outside the box style that we kind of come up with for that. And we loved the name. And when this festival came up, we're like, oh, you know, maybe we can just throw that name at it and just sort of build a brand around that. Because this is a, a different thing that people haven't really done. And I think that's sort of a big part of what what uh, Travis and I wanted to do is, is to come up with some things that hadn't been done before, always be the first to the party. And that became sort of the Dieselbird MO. 
Um, so the, the planning, it's so funny the, the way these things go. And, you know, uh, I'm sure it's sort of related to if you were trying to get something off the ground as far as a show and in a really weird way. But I, I felt like I had to like sort of edge my way up. Like I'd get, I'd get my friends, artists that were my friends on board, you know, like Andrew Hyatt and Nice Horse. And then from there I could be like, well, you know, Andrew Hyatt and Nice Horse are doing the show. Do you want to play this show? And then <clears throat> right. artists started, it just like, it started slowly when I started getting people interested in it. But, you know. You sort of build the credibility bubble, uh, one artist at a time, right? And then, and then you can parlay off that credibility to procure another artist. Exactly. And, you know, it was so crazy because like after three days of calling all my friends and everybody I knew, all of a sudden we had labels calling us asking if they could slot, you know, like major labels calling us after they could slot some, some time for their artist or whoever. And, and, you know, I started to look at the schedule and I was thinking like, this is crazy. I got five hours of Instagram on my six hours of Instagram on my hands here. So we had to split it into two days. And, and that was really actually kind of a blessing because it opened us up for the opportunity to bring in some other genres. You know, we had Adam Gonche from St. Sonia, formerly of three days, grace, Yes. Josh Ramsey of Mariana's Trench and Tyler Shaw and Sean Hook and yeah, it was it was cool. It really it taught me it, it like it's way obviously way different than doing a physical festival, but it really made my brain start to understand just even a little bit of what festival promoters have to go through as far as you know people wanting to be at certain times and wanting to be ahead of the other person on the poster. Right, right. The billing, the lineup, all of the potential drama that comes along with that too. You know that's. That's always a struggle is, you know, you've got you've got backstops in terms of real statistics, um, market statistics that just don't lie. Right. Mm. And you can default to those to a degree. But if you really want an artist involved and um, he or she or they would like to be on at a certain time and build a certain way, then, you know, you've you've got to figure that out. You've got to navigate that and try and keep everybody happy. So good on you for being able to pull that off, especially in such a short window in terms of time. Oh man. And you know what there is, we did have some, some mess ups that we learned a lot. Like, uh, man, Sean hook was so awesome. Such a nice guy. And we gave him the wrong time. And so he was just sitting around waiting for like two hours to come on for 15 minutes. And I just felt so bad. This dude is, you know, he's got like a real career in L.A. He's signed to Hollywood Records and he's like, you know, he's he's kind of he's representing Canada and L.A. in a big way in the pop scene. And, and I just uh, I just felt awful. So I profusely apologize for that. But other than that, it was, you know, it was actually pretty smooth. You know, it, it's um, it was fun. We, we ended up uh, don't tell Best Buy this, but I bought an iPad just for the show, returned it directly after the show. Um, but we had one, we had the camera. They might, they might know now. <laughs> yeah. Oh, secrets out. Damn it. But we built a set, like we built a whole set around me. So it, it really did feel like I was the host. And, uh, you know, we had uh, everything on this side of the camera, um, like the far side from me, the side that I'd be looking at if I was looking at an artist was all in backwards because the way the Instagram camera works is it has right. to be filmed that way in order to, to read. So it was, it was a lot of work. You know, I had a lot of monitors around me with notes that I wanted to talk about with sponsors that we wanted, had to mention at certain times and, and keeping everyone happy. So yeah, it, it was a juggling act. and I learned a lot. And and, and is that how you wanted to wrote the festival? You procured some sponsors, brought them on board, and then you were able to remunerate some of the artists and obviously pay for your, your overhead for the festival, whatever degree that was. 
Yeah, I mean, and it was it wasn't massive the overhead, but a lot of it was advertising budget. So after we got everything underway, we we pulled in uh, Joel Jelinski, a friend of ours that's, that's great with brand connections and sponsors. Mm-hmm. So he helped a lot on that. Uh, we were using some uh, my agent at the time, Feldman was was uh, they had a branch that did sponsorship, so they kind of chipped in a little bit. Um, yeah, and it, it really came together quite well. Our uh, the other part of the team was our, our digital marketing guy, so we uh, everything was reliant on ads and getting the word out, and and it all was for charity. So, you know, whatever money we made went directly to to Unison to you know try and keep the the fires burning in the music industry. And we ended up raising like fifty four thousand dollars, so it was pretty cool. That's amazing, man. Well done. It's so interesting too, and, and commendable to a degree that the default mechanism for a lot of winners in this business is to take disappointment, which you certainly would have had in your heart when you were in your car with your family on the way to the airport to go to Mexico for a family vacation. You had to turn around, come back home. And rather than, you know, sort of sit around and sulk, which by the way, if you do that, you're human, that's fine. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you took that opportunity to ch- to to channel it into something creative and build something out that hadn't been done before. And it's one of the things I love about artists, you know, like they, whether it's heartbreak from a relationship, some sort of life experience, you know, they can take that pain and and turn it into something that's tangible for the rest of us. Usually that's through music, but in your case, you were able to build out something completely different and creative and involve an entire community who was also in a situation where they were hurting because we all know artists love to perform just as much as the people love to watch them perform. Yeah. And I, I, you know, it's it's such a cool community that we have, especially in Canadian country music, because, uh, you know, f- there's some of my friends out there that are performing artists that are sort of in my lane and, and people that are, you know, we're we're not at the level of the the Bretts and, and the Dallas Smiths and, and these guys, but we're also not starting out. We're somewhere in the middle. We're making fans. Right. We're making some waves. Uh, and, and it's it's tough for people in our zone because we rely so much on on these live performances and connecting with people. And and it's been so cool to see the support uh, just in our artist community, you know, calling to check in on people that maybe make a bit of a, a dark post or something one day. And you just you just, just want to touch base and say hi. So it's actually really interesting. Like I've, I've ended up having some um, some great group text conversations with a bunch of artists and producers and stuff like that. So I, that's been really encouraging throughout this whole thing. And there is a bit of a, a support network there. And, and yeah, I, I just, it really, uh, it really did tighten the family, I think, when, when this whole thing went down with COVID. Yeah, it's such a great way to um, analogize our business. The Canadian country music industry is like a family. And that means we've got the same idiosyncrasies as a family. You know, sometimes there's ridiculous uh, rivalries between camps and artists that, you know, you just want to roll your eyes. It's like, guys, no one fucking cares. Like just, just get back to doing what you do. And then there's uh, and then there's these beautiful moments where everybody comes together and it's very communal at times too. But um, uh, when you get everybody in the same room, I've, I've, I'm sure you've borne witness to this, like at CCMA week, you know, everybody's very congenial. They're very Canadian. They're very polite. Yeah. Um, but when we start getting too much space between us, uh, that's when you start seeing a little bit of of the nitpickiness 
start to, to crop back up. So it's good on you for creating an opportunity like this that, that gave people the opportunity to network when no one out there was able to do it in a manner that was tried, true, and tangible to any degree. Are you going to continue to have more festivals under that banner or what's your plan for the future? Yeah, well, you know, we we did do the uh, the hotel music festival. We we called that a yes. show as well, and that was in August. And uh, you know, talking about the the Canadian country music family, it was so great seeing all those people that were performing on that show because everyone just had this like excited life in their face because it was just like we're playing a show. There's real people here. It's so cool. So that that was fun to see, and, and that was that was another you know a, a totally different style of an undertaking. We did have a, a digital live stream component to that, but you know we were working closely with Rob Sirnowski in Calgary. Uh, he's he had secured this venue, um, and we were dealing with you know the city of Calgary for noise and and COVID regulations as well as Alberta right. Health Services and sponsors. So it ended up working out great. It was a it was a hotel for anybody that doesn't know it out there that that all the rooms face the pool deck. And so there's about a hundred rooms and we were allowed to do four people per room, a cohort, and they could just watch the show on their balcony and, you know, have a drink and not have to drive. And it was actually really a really cool concept that and it sold out. On. Yeah. We sold out in a couple of days. And, and again, we, we were able to raise some money for uh, unison and, and I was able to pay all the artists a little bit, a little bit of cash. And so everyone left really happy. So two positive experiences for Dieselbird. We're not, a hundred percent sure where we're going with it but i think what i'd really like to do is stick to the thing where it's like be first to the party and and innovate and create something a new solution for for the industry and and i know we're we're talking about some ideas when live music kind of gets closer back to normal um about some some sort of unique touring socially setups. distanced yeah yeah i mean who knows what what it's going to look like so it's really i'm finding it really hard to to visualize and to plan and, and to put any any real you know things in motion just because i can't predict what the timeline is going to be like at all it's uh it's crazy out there i think that's one of the most frustrating things from the industry side is uh i've always felt that the job of a manager or an agent is to provide their client with a degree of certainty you know mm. here's what we're capable of in the marketplace here's what we can do here's what we can't do and here's why. And all of that has been taken away by and large by uh, the irregularities in, in um, some of the protocols and procedures around COVID. And, and listen, I'm not I'm not shitting on the administrators or or, you know, the people whose job it is to protect us uh, in a strange time like this. But, you know, there are some real inconsistencies that that really feel like it it's targeting the the live music business. And I know it's not, I know it's not malicious, but you know, when the casino has to shut down their showroom, for example, despite the fact that we've got plexiglass six feet high across the front of the stage, the nearest audience members 24 feet away, everybody's um, grouped in bubbles at tables and they're wearing masks and that is prohibited, but you can go wander the casino floor, the gaming floor and play slots and bump and brush against people, which I assume is happening. And that's fine. You know, it's like, uh, well, who's making those rules? You know, I, I, I totally feel you, man. I, I feel like the live music industry is completely an afterthought to, to those kind of situations. And it's just nothing really 
makes sense. And I know there's no, there's not a, any real great way to deal with this unless it's like a hard lockdown for, you know, everything's canceled for a couple months, which maybe is that that's the answer. Cause right, right now to me, it feels like we have a designated pissing section in the pool. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. It's like some people are being safe, but some people are allowed to go do whatever they want over there. And it's just like, ah, yeah, it's not, it's not helping. It just keeps and the piss is making its way to all sections of the pool. Exactly. That that saying, yeah. Yeah, totally. So yeah, a, I get that. I mean, I also think that um, the pandemic response uh, uh, template is is something that should be a bit more nuanced depending on the, the fatalities of whatever disease they're trying to protect us from. Like, obviously, this isn't the first pandemic. This won't be the last. Um, but I would imagine that the the responses are somewhat templated to different degrees, I'm sure. Um, but I'm hoping that we can continue to learn about this disease, that science can uh, reveal to us uh, all of the truths it needs to so that we can build out, you know, safe mechanisms where we can plan concerts again. And, you know, I've been saying for a long time to anybody that I've had discussions with from that world, like, hey, listen, we'll play by the rules, but we need some fucking rules. So, yeah you know, you, you got to help us with that. I'm not an epidemiologist. I can't come up with the protocol, but what I can do is enforce them at my shows and make sure that everyone's safe, that we don't create super spreader events. Um, but I need some help so that we can plan and we can give artists a degree of certainty again. And if that means we're doing drive-in shows all next summer, well then fine, let's just do that. Just right. Like we, we made it work this past summer. <laughs> Uh, we'll make it work again if we need to, but uh, the inability to plan, I think, is is one of the things that's really gutting our business right now. And so, um, I'm hoping we're going to get more direction uh, from the individual provinces, from the health authorities, um, from the epidemiologists to 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 prioritize to a degree an industry that <clears throat> indirectly uh, employs almost three percent of the entire population of this country. Yeah, I was you know, going to say, it's not, it's not like it's an industry that doesn't make money. Like, there's a lot. Billions. Uh, yeah, it's it's crazy, yeah. right? So, I don't know. Are, do you find, like, the promoters and, and you know, people that are putting on these big shows and tours and things like that, is there any insider info for you guys? Or are you just waiting for the announcements like everyone else is? Um, the conversations are ongoing, but it's not like we're we're getting any degree of certainty. And listen, I get it. I think that that if you're in an administrative position um, with the government, you probably don't want to stick your neck out, right? So true. I would imagine that that there's, you know, that, that, that it's very difficult to obtain ta tangible, credible information because a lot of people just don't know exactly where this thing is going to go in the next three, four months. And, uh, and they don't want to stick their neck out. And I understand, you know, if I were in that position, I probably would be just trying to hang on to my job at this yeah. point in time, you know, and, and contribute as best as I could. But one thing that's concerning me a little bit is the festivals for next summer, because if you look at a festival like, like Boots and Hearts, for example, I've actually got Brooke Dunford. Well, she'll have been on the podcast by the time that your podcast with me airs. And we talked a little bit about, the dangers of a reduced capacity scenario. So if you've paid your headliners a certain amount of money and you've built your budget around being able to sell 20,000 tickets and the government comes in 
a month before your show and reduces your capacity down to, to 10,000 or 5,000 people, you know, how does that affect your ability to execute an event? Well, it basically just takes you right out of the mix altogether. Right. So well, you can't, you can't get the same talent that you would initially want. Like those like marquee world headliner talents yeah. kind of they fall off the map completely for you. Right. So it could be a good year for Canadian country music artists, especially if the border remains closed uh, up until late spring, which, you know, um, it could. Um, but but that that's that's the part that's scaring me a little bit with the outdoor festivals. The indoor stuff is just that, that's going to roll back whenever it rolls back, like whenever we're allowed to have people indoors for concerts again. Um, whether it's once we reach some point of herd immunity or whether or not there's some sort of safety mechanism or protocol in place that allows us to put people together under a roof, uh, that's going to come back whenever it does. It might take another year, might take another six months. We might have something rolling by second quarter next year. Um, but the outdoor festivals, that's the one that really scares me. That's the one that really feels up in the air because if you've made these commitments to the Eric churches of the world, um, and he's blocked his entire weekend to come to Canada that summer. Um, and you've paid out deposits. It gets really weird if suddenly you're dealing with a quarter or half the capacity that you thought you had and you're trying to make your numbers work. Like it's, yeah, it's going to get, it's a, it hurts your brand too, for, for these, you know, acts coming up from the States or whatever. And they, if they come to your show and it's just like, well, this isn't, this is like 4,000 people. This isn't 20,000 people, you know, it's just like mentally that might change how people look at the brand too, which is, which is not good for those, those big festivals, especially the ones that are sort mom and pop air quote festivals, you know, like up until recently, big Valley was like that. It's just big Valley was, is all in house and there's no, right. you know, there's, there's no big network. And I feel like the people that are putting on those independent festivals are probably going to be in a hard place. I, I think that the landscape, tell me if I'm wrong here. I think the landscape of festivals in two years from now might look completely different. And I think we might not see a lot of the same names that we used to. Is that, do you think that's a valid? Oh, I think we're going to lose anywhere between 20 and 40% of the festivals that we see on the landscape now. Now, now listen, they will come back because yeah. we always see a boom bust cycle in festivals. Um, I've been in the business for 20 years and I'll see every five years, there'll be new festivals cropping up. A yeah. bunch are going to go broke, and then and then you've got your your mainstays, and that changes the landscape. And then a few years later, everybody jumps into the festival game again because they think they can make millions of dollars, and they don't understand uh, the overhead, the cash outlay, and um, and so you just have these cycles continuing. Now, I think the, those cycles are going to be elongated, and then the festivals are going to minimize for a significant period of time, probably a couple of years. And then, you know, they'll, they'll garner more capital, more investment opportunities, and, uh, and more festivals will crop back up eventually. But we definitely all have to pull together and play the long game for sure. Yeah, you know, it's like, it's, uh, I was listening to a Joe Rogan podcast and he had some epidemiologist or whatever, somebody, some fancy pants scientist guy who is an expert on the, the, the subject. And he was saying that, uh, they're predicting um, that in by 2024, it's it's gonna we're gonna have something a period that's reminiscent of the Roaring Twenties, where it's just people are out all the time, hungry for, you know, seeing each other in social situations, whether it's a bar or a live music show or whatever. And I'm wondering how that's if that's gonna be something that you and I notice 
in a couple of years if it's just like, oh my god, things are really rolling now. We're we're back. We're back. <laughs> I hope so. Well, I mean, there there are some transferable concepts from physics to real life, right? Like the the idea that every action has an opposite and equal reaction, and so I, I don't disagree with that premise. I think that people are going to be pent up. They're going to be, uh, you know, once the fear has subsided, the fear. Uh, in terms of how the media is either responsibly or irresponsibly reporting or hyperbolizing this pandemic. And and by the way, that's all going to bear itself out in the future. We're going to decide uh, in five to 10 years from now whether we felt like this was being covered fairly and whether we thought that our protocols and procedures were on point or overreaching or maybe not enough. Um once the fear leaves the conversation, then I think people are going to be back in full force. I think the consumer market is going to be great. You know, the the only asterisks I would say there is uh, these lockdowns have taken down with them a, a number of businesses. And so I think the economy is going to have to get reshaped a little bit, reformed and uh, and revivified to a degree before people are going to have you know, too much in the way of, of, of income, especially expendable income to attend shows. So that, that's the only thing that I think is a little bit different from say the roaring twenties where we came out of a pandemic, first world war, uh, a stock market boom, which uh, predicated um, the, the, the roaring twenties. Right. Right. And then of course, you know, the dirty thirties followed that. So (laughs) we don't want that. You know, yeah, you know equal, so equal and opposite. <laughs> well, the funny thing, you know, talking about shows and stuff going on, I, I was I reached out to the, somebody that was part of the team that booked me in Beijing a couple of years ago. And uh, they're saying that in China, you know, everything's back to normal. Like they're they're doing full on shows and there's they don't they don't. I think they've restricted travel leaving China and coming into China a little bit. But as far as I know, like mu- live music is kind of normal there. And I have a brother. Well, they've a had bro- a vaccine um, in China for a few months now, and they've been. I would imagine, you know, the 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 good thing about a totalitarian centralized government <laughs> is that they can move. Yeah. They can move quickly. Yeah. They can move quickly on the population without, you know, um, a lot of a lot of back and forth, right? There's not like going to be a whole lot of people going like, I don't trust the government. I do what I want. It's probably right. There, there are people who I'm sure feel that way and say that, but they can't say it publicly. So that, that's what makes the difference. Now, listen, I'm not, I'm not advocating for that. I'm just saying that the ability to manipulate the population is far easier in a, in a communist dictatorship situation like they have over there. Right. So 100%. I would imagine they've, they've forced vaccines I mean, I don't know this for sure, but I would imagine they've they've been able to get uh, across the board compliance, let's say, from their citizenship to participate in whatever vaccine program they've had. And, you know, that's probably been very successful. And uh, and maybe that's the reason why things have come back so quickly. And listen, you know, I'm not an anti-vaxxer, but I do understand why people might have some concerns about a, a vaccine that's mass produced in a very short amount of time. And, and yeah, you don't want to be the first through... one to get it, right? Like, it just right, right. Like, like I, yeah. I get it. I mean, I, I understand why people might have some trepidation. 
So totally. yeah, fair enough, sure. you know, but, a, but if it does return us to some degree of normalcy, if the side effects are not, uh, uh, to the degree that they are, you know, um, uh, overly harmful, uh, then I think you're going to get buy-in almost across the board because people do want to get back to some semblance of normalcy. And I understand that. But again, I also understand the people on the other side of the argument who are going like, I don't know, man, I don't want to be a guinea pig for this thing. I get it. Fair yeah. enough. Yeah, it's, it is a little scary. You're putting something into your body. You know, it's so interesting that the different experiences that people have throughout this whole thing. Like I have a brother-in-law who lives in Taiwan and they never really had an issue at all, like a tiny little island. And it's, I think it's, it's, there's probably a little bit more of a, a, you know, military kind of a police influence there, but he says it's. Did they lock down hard and heavy in the beginning? Yeah. You know, no, no flights in or out. And, and even though they're so proximity, you know, they're tight proximity to China, they're, they were fine. They never had any cases. No, no one was really enforcing anything crazy. And they still have these, like, I saw a picture of this massive DJ festival with, I don't know, like 10,000 people at it or whatever. And it's just like, man, what a different world that those guys are living in right now. So it's interesting. Right. But, right. Yeah. Well, when it comes back here, it is going to come back in a big way. And I think those of us in the entertainment business are really excited about that. Yeah. So I feel like we're going to see the the creative boom of whatever it is, 2021 or two. And uh, that's going to be cool. I know everybody I, I've been talking to is just trying to stay busy and keep on top of that because we're all expecting everybody to come out guns a blazing when it's time to go. How has it affected you in terms of creativity, uh, giving you more time, obviously, with the family, giving you more time to write, more time to prepare? Um, have you found that it's been a real boon for that aspect of your career? Yeah, actually, you know, I've been I've been learning a lot. I've been trying to like trying to put into practice. Um, I can't remember where I heard it. It's just some something I read or heard somewhere where they're saying like lots of successful CEOs take 10 to 15 minutes a day to just sit and think. And so I, I'm trying to pull that into the beginning of my day and just really plan out what I want to accomplish throughout the day and, and basically throughout a bit of a long term, you know, a couple months sort of span. And it's it's really allowed me to uh, to focus on learning a lot and and keeping busy, spinning lots of plates. So I've been, you know, I've been writing and producing tons for other people. I've been really digging into a couple certain projects, um, you know, in some different genres. I've been doing a lot of rock music lately, which has been fun. Um, I've been pitching songs to K-pop and J-pop artists, and and so a lot of a lot of that is just flowing nonstop, and uh, it's it's allowed me to come up with some sort of crazier more viral projects that i, I want to get more into on the video side of things too so i mean it's actually been really an interesting refresher for my brain you know this summer especially where i be dropping 15 20 grand on air canada didn't have to do that and i got a lot of time in the backyard to to sit and think and, and plan and, and come up with you know how do i keep the how do I keep the engine burning while while I'm not out there on the road? And, and it's it's a different mindset to take, but it's a really great, you know, it's a, it's a great way to up your your marketing game. I I think. I think a lot of us are uh, so busy, and and this goes for the industry side too. You're flying by the seat of your pants a lot of times. It's it's like you're, you know, you're you're planning this tour. You're jumping on a plane. You're you're joining up with tour X Y Z. You're out on the road. Um, and you might be, you might, you might have like, for me, I've got a daily list. So I compile a list every night 
before I go to bed of what I need to do the next day. And then I check off those items, right? And that's everything from uh, family time to the things I want to do to maintain my health to my duties as an agent manager and, and, and label head. So I check off this list, but I've been much more diligent, methodical on that since I've actually been home and had time to plan. And, and I think that that's going to be one of the big benefits that comes out of this pandemic is that we're in a business where everybody's going 90 miles an hour all the time. And finally we've had a minute to sit in park and think and, mm. and really plan out where we want to see our careers go in the next five to 10 years. For those of us who have, who have been, um, in a position where you could take advantage of of the time uh, that we've had to spare to do that. I mean, a lot of people have had to pick up part-time jobs and just make ends meet. And I get they're not necessarily in the same position, but um, it, it's been good for a reset in terms of that aspect. And uh, and it's been interesting to see what, or it's going to be really interesting to see what comes out of your world because you're creative at the best of times. I mean, some of your, tell us a little bit about, well, first off, I want to talk in a moment about your transition from rock to country and, and the fact that you still maintained uh, a lot of relationships in the world of rock and you still write a lot, you still produce projects in that world. But tell us a little bit about how you came up with some of these concepts for some of these videos that have gone viral. I mean, <laughs> found was sort of the first one that was like a minimal budget, but everybody got a kick out of that video. The single ended up going gold. Um, give us a little backstory into that and then some of the other projects that you're proud of. Yeah, well, I think um, my mindset coming into country music f four or five years ago uh, hadn't really changed from what I'd done in in the indie rock world. You know, it was always for me, it was we were always just kind of it was always gritty and we were always doing whatever we could on our own dime. And and it didn't wasn't always shiny and i know we couldn't always afford to make it shiny so we had to make sure that the 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 subject matter like that whatever we were shooting was compelling somehow so um so i was mentioning travis is my partner in a lot of this stuff travis is also from that world he was a singer in a rock band that we used to tour with a lot so we kind of had the same thing we were always making these behind the scenes kind of stupid funny road videos and quick plug for travis nesbitt uh follow the guy on socials he's brilliant he's uh, he's got a sense of humor that definitely emulates yours yeah. um i i totally understand why you two are fit yeah it's a good complimentary thing and we just you know we have the hilar most hilarious text messages when it comes to video planning but profound for example uh it was like I just put out the song and it just kind of took off and you know it was it was great because it, it's established a momentum that I had to keep up with the song in order to establish a career so you know it was it was top 20 before I knew it and I was like we need to get a video done for this like this weekend to put it out because CMT was still a thing and that that was you know something I really wanted to conquer um so I had 500 bucks and I called them and I was like what can we do for 500 bucks and, and we sat on YouTube for a second and we we're just like I don't know so we just like get some mascot costumes and embarrass our friends. And we're like, yeah, let's do that. So that's literally, that was the video treatment. We went to the theater garage in Edmonton and rented some costumes and we just shot a video and we didn't plan anything. We just kind of shot as we went and it was kind of performancey and, and yeah, I don't know what happened, but it took off and it went well. And we were like, okay, there's something there. There's something to this sort of punk rock, just roll and, and shoot and run and gun kind of style. Um, 
so when I put out my second single, Barn Burner, I I'd got a grant for the video, and it wasn't much. Like it was like five thousand bucks or something like that, which is not a lot when you're making a video. Um, so we didn't really have an idea, and we had to start shooting. Our window was closing, so we were chatting on the phone. And I was like, I don't know, should we do a travel thing, maybe? And he's like, Yeah, that'd be cool. And I was like, Well, you know, we love Hawaii. Let's just go to Hawaii, and we'll just, you know, we bring our wives, and we'll just kind of hang, and we'll shoot something on the beach. And he's like, Yeah, that sounds good. And I was just explaining to my wife what what our plan was here, <laughs> which was basically nothing. And uh, he calls me back and he's like, hey, tell Jen she can't come. We're going to Japan. <laughs> he hangs up the phone. So, uh, okay, yeah. So basically we, we came up with this concept in the barn burner video that they were going to dress me up like a cross between Elton John and John Wayne and plot me in the middle of Tokyo. <laughs> and we would just watch how weird John Japanese people Wayne. thought I was. Yeah. So, <laughs> It was great, man. Like that was a, a life-changing experience. And it's so funny. Like it just it was so great because nobody knew what country music was over there. So me walking around in like a 10-gallon cowboy hat and like spurs and everything's white and rhinestone and stuff. People just <laughs> were stopping me on the street to take pictures, or they were horribly embarrassed for me and wouldn't even make eye contact. So <laughs> it was it was uh the first day of shooting, I was so embarrassed I had to get hammered. And then after that, it was great. <laughs> How much time did you spend over there? We were only there for five or six days. Um, but when that video came out, people were, were talking a lot about it. And I was like, I think I'm becoming this, the video guy. So we got to keep up in the game. And uh, the third one, we decided to do a not a, a travel one. But we uh, we bought like $500 worth of cardboard. And we converted my garage into the bridge of the Starship Enterprise from <laughs> Star Trek. <laughs> My wife was very confused. My daughters have no idea what I do for a living. And frankly, neither do I. Um, but it was hilarious. And and then after it, got, after it was out, I was just reposted this this morning, but uh, Colonel Chris Hatfield retweeted it. And, and that pretty much made it all worth it for me on that one. That's amazing. Yeah, I mean, um, that video is hilarious. I think I think there's something, especially in the country music world, that fans and, and consumers really gravitate towards an underdog, you know, and, and when you can play into that role a little bit by, by going, yeah, you know what, this isn't a big budget video, but we're going to make it fucking hilarious. And we're going to have some fun and it's going to be authentic. Um, I think there's something about that. That's really appealing. It, it explains why, you know, separate uh, somewhat from the, the argument I just made about the country music consumer and, and their proclivities, but it explains why some of the most viral videos on YouTube are made on a shoestring budget. You know, people, people get a kick out of it. They go like, oh, geez, if I were more creative, maybe I could pull something like that off. It sort of gives everybody a, a sliver of hope if they're a creator to any degree, right? To go, hey, listen, you don't, you know, you can pull off the, the P. Diddy style music videos with a $1.3 million budget, yeah. but you you also have the opportunity to create something almost out of thin air that's going to resonate and um that's what so people cool. just like they just like to cheer for the underdog right and those videos sort of positioned you in that world that way it's like you can tell they're not big budget but they're super creative and that's the most endearing aspect to them i think that's what yeah i think so i mean i hope that that's what the case is for me it's like there's so many gatekeepers in this industry and, and, and doing things on my own terms as far as viral content on YouTube or Facebook allows me to kind of circumvent them a little bit and, and, and stick some, some little, um, you know, plant some seeds in the fans in a different way. If, if, if there's some traditional areas that I'm having trouble breaking into, you know, whether it be like 
top 10 on commercial radio or something like that. Right. Um, at least I can come at it from a different side and, and do something a little bit, you know, different. And, and it helps forward the, um, the narrative a little bit. Like for, for example, I found a bunch of these line dancers online that were in France and in Hungary and in Italy. And I was uh, going over to France to do a festival anyway. So I brought Travis and <laughs> with me and Russ, uh, our assistant director and, and creative partner as well. And we just like contacted these people and we made a music video featuring all these line dancers from around the world. So we were in Budapest and we were in Milan and we were all in all these cool places. And it, it helps <clears throat> sort of people think like, oh, this is, you know, he's doing something on a global scale. This is really interesting that there's people from around the world that, that know his music and are dancing to it. So not only is it interesting content, but it helps kind of, it helps me forward the narrative like, hey, I'm indie, but I'm doing stuff right? and things are happening. And that's, uh, that's kind of what and you're traveling vibe the world, that I'm trying to put out there. Yeah. A cool I mean, I thought, I thought for sure when I was done in the rock and roll world that international travel was over. I just, you know, cause country music, it's, it's football, you know, it's Canada, America, and a little bit Australia for the most part. I mean, there are little nuggets that are starting to, to emerge now, but those are the three main yeah, markets. The, the UK is really, the UK is really coming along. Yeah. And I've been really trying to plant some seeds over there and I, I love going to England to work and, and hang. Um, but yeah, for coming from a rock band, I, I thought that rock was more of an international kind of a touring genre, but you know, we only went to the States in, in my old band and with country music, I've been to seven countries. So it's, it's crazy really, you know, uh, I really hope that I can continue to develop in the UK. I think that's, that's a, it's going to be, it's, it's going to be a market that I think is the next emerging country market. Well, you made a good point about gatekeepers and, and, I've always been of the mindset that the more that we can sort of mitigate gatekeepers, the more creativity will flow to the surface and flourish, right? Like mm -hmm. the, the negative thing about, about gatekeepers is, is, you know, and I know this is a massive generalization, but they generally want to put their stamp on something or they want to homogenize, uh, you know, a, a sound or a vibe or a brand. And, and when that happens, even though it might become successful, uh, you kill a little bit of what that artist might stand for, you know? And, and, and so I think, I think the more we've got direct access to the marketplace in terms of artists and indie artists like yourself, um, the more creative innovation we're going to see over and over again because you're not you're not running your art past a committee of executives who all have their subjective opinion on it you know mm -hmm. you're able to go i'm going to put this video together and i'm going to convert my garage to the starship starship enterprise and i'm going to actually have some fun with how insane that idea is by integrating my wife and children <laughs> into the video <laughs> You know, like, oh my God, it's yeah. such a, for people who don't know what I'm talking about, just, just go to Dan Davidson's YouTube channel, run through those music videos. You'll get a kick out of them. I guarantee you, if you haven't, haven't borne witness to them or listened to the songs, you will be entertained. Um, oh, well, you know, it, it is, yeah. it is interesting what you're saying there. I feel like um, there's a lot 
you know, there's, I think the gatekeeper side of things, it's because there's a lot of fear in the music industry. Everyone wants to keep their job, obviously. And it's a really cool place to be and no one wants to, to change things, but you don't want to rock the boat. Exactly. Right. And I think that's uh, on the industry side of things. I think that's something I can sense. Um, But for me, it's like, it's like what you're saying. I don't want that to affect or water down what I'm doing. So I'm trying to figure out those ways to still do what I do and still make them happy and still make the fans engaged. And, and I think that's the real balance of it all. And it, it, it's so hard. Like it's, it's tricky and it's, it's frustrating because when you're, when you're forging your own path, sometimes, you know, you hit a dead end and you got to turn back and, and find a new way too. So, um, yeah. And I think that's where I'm at and I'm happy to do that because I'm honestly having more fun doing what I'm doing now than I ever have in, in my last you know, 15 years or whatever doing music. And uh, it's really interesting. And I think part of that is being able to express personality that's honest and, and right. not put on, you know, play the game too much. And yeah, I, I think that the music videos kind of show that you're talking, <laughs> you're talking about my wife and kids in the video. I put, there was a video I released. Uh, I can't even remember when it was almost a, yeah, about nine months ago now called I do, which I co-wrote in England. Um, and I was going to put Jen in the video, my wife, and uh, the day the day after we shot, I was supposed to go to Europe to play some shows and do some stuff. So we only had one day to shoot, and Jen had thrown out her back that night, so we didn't know what we were going to do. And I was like, you know what? This was going to be a sweet music video. It's Valentine's Day kind of thing. It was going to be an epic date for me and my wife doing all these amazing things. So I was like, let's just do the video, and we'll call my friend Mike to play Jen. So- <laughs> So we got Mike Nash from the Prairie States, a band here in town in Edmonton. Right. And, and Mike and I went on this epic bro date. Love and Mike. Then, great guy. <laughs> and then we just slapped Jen's face <laughs> on Mike's body, hairy chest and all. And, and uh, you know, we put it out and people were like, oh, this is so sweet that you did this for your wife. And I was like, I think I did this to my wife. <laughs> <laughs> So, yeah, that's kind of the, the vibe that I'm trying to chase is those things that make me laugh and make other people laugh. Oh, I'm sure one of the reasons she married you is for your sense of humor. So, you know, I'm sure I'm sure she got it. But it, <laughs> it's an interesting point you make about gatekeepers. And then I want to leave that that subject behind for a little bit. But um, it's almost like if you're in that position, I understand the, the desire to want to keep your job, but you have, an in, you have a duty that's somewhat incumbent upon you to roll the dice every now and then and to try something that doesn't necessarily fit inside the box and take it to the marketplace and see what people think and let the market decide and judge. And again, I understand why people don't want to do that, but it's important to do that every now and then because you can be on the vanguard. You can be on the vanguard of how the industry evolves, right? Like the people who never take risks in this business might keep their job forever, but they rarely go down, uh, in terms of of legendary legacy as someone who was a game changer right Dude, so, I'm so i'm so glad you said that i think that that's that's 100 true I know, I know people have to you know get the job done and, and do the things told the line done. yeah yeah to some to some extent because it's just like the industry works on that but i think you're right like i think like sticking your neck out on something you believe in is is honorable and it's it's great and it just shows it shows um I don't know, just investment in, in, in the art and in the industry. And I, I like that. I think that's cool. Well, and we're also hypersensitive to neg- negative emotion too and negative feedback. And, and that that is all available in real time thanks to social media. So <laughs> yeah. again, I, I understand why people go, well, I don't want to stick my neck out because, you know, I, I'm, I 
could lose my job. I could lose some status. I could fail. Um, but you know, th that's where the magic is found, uh, you know, by people stepping outside of the realm of what's acceptable currently or, or, you know, and, and building out, like I said before, a vanguard of, of where the industry is going to evolve. And, um, you've been able to do that creatively and in your, in your journey from rock to country, what did you notice in terms of, of cultural differences between those worlds? So, you know, you're playing a rock festival. I'm sure it's got a certain vibe. I'm sure the audience has a certain vibe. I'm sure the buyers and promoters have a certain vibe versus what you're doing when you go out and play a country festival, which is generally a bit of a different thing. Yeah, I mean, there was a, there was a, a big perspective change, I think, for me, because, you know, when I started doing Tupelo Honey, I was 19 um, and we did that for a long time. So, like, I think my expectations as far as what I wanted out of a music career has grown as well as, as uh, changes in people's uh, reaction and in embracing of the genre a little bit. So when I started, it was, you know, early two thousands, I think. And, and it felt like rock was in a really healthy place. People wanted to see live music. They wanted to see rock music and they wanted to have fun and party and be loud and, and kind of get crazy. And that, that was great. I think, you know, radio was a healthy place for us. Much music was working and we didn't know what we were doing. I had no idea about the industry. I was just happy to play guitar and just go out on the road all the time. You know, I often think. Back, I don't think that's an anomaly. Yeah. I mean, I think back now as a, as a person that has to handle all these things, um, if I'd only known, you know, the stuff I know now, I, I feel like Tupelo Honey ne probably never would have stopped. Um, but yeah, you know, it was it was a good place. The vibe was 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 open. I feel like there was a bit of a, a competitiveness amongst artists uh, in that world at the time, and it was kind of silly, really. I, I think it was it was a little it's a little macho or something. Like it was just like music's not football. You can't win. It's just everyone should should be happy. We have a scene and support each other. And it wasn't right. the case in those days, at least in Western Canada. And um, yeah, and then as we got older and we grew, that, we, that's really driven from scarcity, though. I really feel, you know, yeah. when I see when I see our business get a little bit, uh, you know, the Canadian country music business, when I see it get a little bit um, ridiculous and the rivalries get ridiculous, usually it's driven from a place of scarcity and fear. And, you know, if, if that individual acquire something then now it's suddenly not available for me but the re the reality is you're right everybody could have their own lane everybody can have their own career not everybody's going to win male artist of the year but at the end of the day if you're making a living at what you love and you're creating a fan base that that's loyal who gives a fuck yeah that's the win right there and you know ralph james when we were with the agency group back in the day said something to me that always stuck with me He's, he, he just pulled me aside one day he's like you know never think about or talk about or even look for what other artists are doing it's all about what you're doing you can't compare anybody else's progression to what you're doing because it's completely different and and i think that that is great advice i, I really held on to that um and i still you know i still get those feelings of jealousy and stuff like that when i see somebody around me who does something that well, you're pops human off. yeah and it's yeah. it's to completely normal but i think i've now <laughs> after years of doing this i've learned to be like okay well that's cool. What what can I do to make my version of that success? And and that's kind of more what I try to keep in mind when those little nuggets of jealousy flare up, and it, it does happen for sure. Um, but yeah, yeah it's you know, a sign of emotional intelligence to 
be inspired and learn from people who are successful rather than be jealous and, and, and frustrated by it. Right. And, and by the way, I, I subscribe to the jealousy aspect all the time. I'm still human, <laughs> but you know, you've got to pull yourself back from that sort of uh, engage the frontal lobe and go, okay, well, uh, that was good on them for pulling that off. You know, I wonder what tactics and strategies they use that I could integrate into my own project to make it successful, as opposed to, you know, screw that guy and his camp. And, uh, you know, I, there's just no utility in that mindset. No. And you know what I find too, for me, I get those feelings more now when I see a younger artist that figures something out way before I figured it out. And it's like, ah, that little bastard. But like, for example, there's a, a guy, I think he's from Edmonton as a rapper named Tom McDonald. And he put out a couple songs and it just like exploded online. And he, he you know, for example, he put out, he's, he's not super, you know, he's, he hasn't been in the game that long. And he put out a video this week that had a million views in a day. And it was like number seven on iTunes trending or uh, on YouTube trending. And I was like, man, this is, this is crazy. And, and, for me, I think experiencing the way the industry used to be it coming up in a time where I f really felt the big shift. Um, like there's part of me that understands how the old world works. And nowadays it just, it seems more and more like either you explode overnight or you don't at all, <laughs> you know, and like, I mean, that's an obvious clear wild generalization, but when these are the things that you see on social media that kind of, that make you go like, ah, oh, it's like, People so in a situation like that where your first instinct was natural, by the way, I'm not beating you up for this, but but to be somewhat jealous, how did you step away from that and and learn something from what that artist has been able to do? Like what what did you take out of that experience of bearing witness to that that's actually been of utility to you? Well, I was looking at his content a lot and kind of analyzing what he does. And I, I think I understand uh, a lot of factors play into the success of it, like the, the demographic of who his fans would be, um, where they are. It's America focused for sure. And it's it's a genre thing, hip hop, massive in America. And and there was there was some real sort of like, um, what do you call it? Just like controversial topics and things like that that get shared a lot. So it's 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 um, it's, it's a different nature of something that I would do. So I understand the viral appeal to it. And it kind of made me step back and be like, okay, that's cool. And then I looked on his Instagram and his Facebook page. I'm really using this guy as an example, but you know, and I, I saw he was interacting with his fans and some of the, the actions that he's taking to keep his fans engaged. And, uh, you know, you could, you learn a lot from, from um, different tricks on, on how people present themselves online. And I, I, I like that. I thought that that was really great. And I think it's, it's really cool. Um, yeah. I, I can't remember. But to be fair, that. those, those are all things you do anyway, you know, by yeah, and it's, large, it's just a matter of finding that right song that connects, you know, like, and, and that's the critical mass you, you mm -hmm. can do you can enact the proper tactics and strategies and have a great work ethic, but still for some reason not connect just because you don't have the right song at the time, right? Like th yeah, that's a real issue. Totally. And, and there's a lot of uh, timing things and, and stuff that goes into it too. So I always, I always try and encourage, um, you know, maybe newer or even people that are just in a point in their career where they, they feel like they're not connecting. It's, it's not, I feel like some people have great songs and it's it's sometimes they're just a victim of of timing and circumstance and I don't think they should discredit their creative efforts as something that's not good enough. Um you know there's certain people that are so talented that just 
just haven't got the break yet. And I, I always, I always think that there's, there's a time and a place when, when the stars really line up. And, and if you can just be great and not go away, you get more of those chances. So yeah, hundred like percent. I, I, I couldn't agree more that, you know, relentlessness is one of the assets that you need to have as an artist, because, you know, if, if you've got a rose colored glasses perspective on the industry and you think you're going to put out a song and everybody's going to love it as much as your mom does, um, you could be setting yourself up for a lot of failure, you know, and, and that, that's why I'm a big fan too of artists uh, working diligently to surround themselves with people who tell them the things that they need to hear as opposed to the things they want to hear. They're going to get, they're going to get a lot of the latter from their friends and family. And um, they're going to get that support that they need to sort of feed the ego fire to get them, to get them charged up enough to take another run. But they need those people around them who are like, Hey, listen, like if, if you did this, this, and this, maybe there's a chance that we could actually get the success that you're striving for. And, you know, sometimes those conversations are very hard. You know, I've had lots of managers on the podcast and we've talked in depth about how important it is to have that dynamic of, of positive uh, reinforced encouragement, but also the ability and the dynamic to be able to disagree with your client in order to help steer them towards the goals and objectives that they've outlined. Right. Yeah. So yeah, that's a big part of it. Real, it takes a real friend to tell you you suck sometimes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> which is, yeah. Which is kind of true. Like I, I find I've learned uh, which people in my immediate circle will tell me something's awesome all the time and which people will tell me like, eh, you could do better. <laughs> and that's right. That's helpful to me, you know. And, and to defend the, the people who are consistently supportive, I mean, they, they might actually believe everything they're telling you. They, you know, subjectively speaking, especially when it comes to art. Sometimes people are like, this is the best thing I've ever heard. And yet, you know, it, it doesn't crack the top 100 on on the radio chart, right? Like there are people out there who who just want to encourage you no matter what you're doing. And you need those people too. But you do need you do need the uh, the opposite dynamic of that at times and, and not necessarily people to tell you who suck. I, I guarantee you those aren't the conversations you're having when you're having difficult conversations with yeah, your inner circle. It's more no, sort no. of like, uh, why don't we try this or try that? And, and, you know, or, or we've tried this same tactic or strategy six times before and it hasn't worked. So why are we banging our head against the wall? You need more people like that to steer you back to um, uh, some semblance of reality and, and to help help build out a perspective of how you're viewed by the marketplace so that you don't fall victim to delusion. Yeah. And that's, that's really important. I think that I really like what you said there about um, maybe we should try doing this or this. I love when people come back with an alternate idea instead of just saying, no, that's not right. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, I feel like it's so hard enough already to get everybody on the same page or to, to come up with a strategy that you can get behind but to have somebody just squash it, it sucks so bad. So it's, yeah, that's, that's cool that you said that. I, I'm, yeah, I agree. I think, I think one of the worst things about the ability to tear things down in this modern world that we live in, in social media is the fact that it, it can really spurn creativity, but also uh, it's easy to tear things down. It's easy to say something sucks subjectively mm -hmm. or that, you know, and you see this, 
heavily in the political world. It's like, it doesn't matter what politician ABC does because the, the opposing politician is going to always criticize it. And I'm more of a, you know, as a voter, I'm like, well, let me hear your ideas then. I mean, I know why you think they suck no matter what they do, but I really want to hear from you. Like, what would you do differently? You know, like uh, you saw this recently in the U.S. with Joe Biden and Donald Trump and that heavily con contentious election and all the divisiveness. But it's like, you know, I, I totally understand why you might want to criticize Trump's approach to the pandemic. But how would you have done it differently? That's yeah. where we actually get the meat and potatoes of the discussion of where we want to go and, and taking that analogy and applying it creatively it's like you know to just shit on something doesn't take any skill but to take something and refine it to take a a, a lump of coal and and help compress it into a diamond that takes nuance that takes some back and forth that takes pressure you know and and in order to yeah. do that you have to have that dynamic with your artist where you can go hey listen i think i think there's six things about this song that are amazing. But I think if you could improve on these last three things, you've got a real smash, right? And that's, that just takes digging in, doing your research and being more certain about where you actually stand on these things. Yeah. And I think, you know, that, that was always a, a tough thing for sort of a weird segue back to what we were talking about for me in the rock world is um, we were all indie all the way. So we were, we were a band that was kind of our own, um, voice of reason which was tough at times because it became just a painful democracy in in the band you know we were making any decision was really labored and we wanted to make sure everyone's voice was heard um but without like a clear leader sometimes it was it was it was really tricky to to pull the trigger on things but i mean that taught me a lot about um people and and how to properly respect somebody's opinion while still getting something done <laughs> and so that there's there's a lot of life skills actually that came from that rock world we we you know we got to we got to learn a lot about the industry you know i, I had a crash course in in basic management and and booking shows and yeah. graphic design and video editing and tour managing and you know all this kind of stuff and and uh it's been a different experience in country i was able to to build a team pretty quickly um and that was great but yeah, I mean, I guess this is a nice segue to circle back to the rock and roll world a little bit here. <laughs> yeah, and, and when you're talking about that interband dynamic, I mean, there's sort of three ways to navigate decision-making in that process. It can be tyranny, which is, you know, I'm the lead, what I say goes, and you're all replaceable and I'm not, right? And some bands subscribe to that. If it works for them, it works for them. There's uh, manipulation, yeah. And uh, and that's pretty uh, self-explanatory. And then there's mm -hmm. there's diplomatic maneuvering where, you know, everyone's everyone's got a bit of give and take, but the dynamic feels right creatively. And um, and generally there's consensus, uh, but sometimes there isn't. And somebody needs to sort of like be the hammer at that point in time and really convince the rest of the band why they need to go a certain direction or put out a certain single or whatever, whatever the decision making is. Right. So in your world, I would imagine given your personality, you're more of the, the diplomatic maneuvering type. 
Band mom. Yep. <laughs> I was band mom for sure. Uh, but, you know, everyone was super cool in that band. So it was it was easy. We were all buddies for such a long time that it wasn't it wasn't the hardest thing in the world to do, although it was painful sometimes when it came to big decisions. But it really it, it really is a different experience as a solo artist, because now it's I just roll, you know, I just keep going, keep the momentum happening. And it's it's it is about quality, but it is about quantity, too. Like, I like to make sure that it's always exciting and I'm I'm pulling the trigger on something all the time. So, I mean, that I, I don't think I could ever be in the position I'm in today without having those years in, in Tupelo Honey because it was really like going to music industry university, just learning everything the hard way, seeing the country, seeing the hard parts about touring, seeing the what I wanted out of music and what I loved about music, which I found out was was really uh, at its core was was connecting with people and, and meeting people and, and uh it's it's i don't know what it is it's just something there's like a bit of a sociological aspect to it that that i think i really love about music i love creating and stuff obviously as well but i think communicating the creation is is the real fun well and i think it's important to like you mentioned this earlier in reflection you're like man i wish i would have known what i know now back then but you got to cut yourself some slack in those moments too, because the reality is you probably wouldn't have absorbed those lessons to the degree you did um, if you hadn't had the experiential knowledge versus someone telling you or reading it somewhere, right? Like there is something about real life lived experience that imprints itself in your mind, your emotions. And that's something that it, currently we can't replicate, right? Like when you learn a lesson the hard way, there's a reason they call it that. It's because mm. now you know how not to do things. Or uh, the opposite is also true. It's like, wow, that really worked. That's something that we can continue to do. But if I had read that in a book or somebody had told me, I wouldn't have had the same level of appreciation for the lesson as I do now. Totally. It's one of those like, ah, easy for you to say kind of things. But yeah, you know, it was... it. It was cool what I got to see and go through, especially when like Tupelo, when we were kind of getting towards the end of our career as a band, I found, um, excuse me, that um, we put out our last record and it was, I thought, creatively our best thing. I thought we nailed it, but I, I got to see a really dramatic shift in the industry. It was the second time I got to see a dramatic industry shift. Um, and this time it was in rock and roll. This genre had just completely changed. Radio had completely changed. And rock radio in Canada all of a sudden was Five Finger Death Punch, Super Heavy, or The Lumineers, which is folk, essentially, <laughs> yeah. right? So right. There, was, there was no place in the middle for, for Tupelo Honey. And, and we we started to see um, how hard that was going to be for us. And it, it uh, yeah, I mean, eventually it allowed us to, to consider the possibility of exploring other opportunities, which we all did. But... Um, yeah, do you so think you'll ever second... get that band to get back together and and do somewhat of a reunion run or something? Have you guys talked about that? Yeah, we always we kick it around once in a while. We get offers from time to time to do it, but um, it'd be a lot of work. <laughs> Have to relearn. Got to so relearn much. a lot of shit. Yeah, uh, yeah. So it would be. I would love to do it. And right now, I'm kind of getting my my rock and roll fix and in some different ways. Like I've been co-writing and producing Clayton Bellamy's upcoming rock record, which is amazing and uh i've got a a rock song in the top 20 right now or top 30 i guess uh from a saskatoon band called weapons that i co-wrote and produced and um yeah i'm doing i wrote a couple songs with the standstills they're working with uh neil from three days grace right now so i got i'm still plugged in over there a little bit and uh getting my fix that way but i i would it, it would be fun to put out a rock song again one day and i i might still do it but working on uh 
You know, it's, it's actually what I've been really loving in COVID time is, is making sure that my brain is like creatively spread out like that, like doing some rock stuff for other people, doing some country stuff for me and like getting pitches from my publisher uh, to pitch to bands in Asia. It's hilarious. Like taking off my mid thirties suburban country guy hat and putting on my 15 year old Korean girl hat. It's a really, it's a bit of a shift, but it's uh it's I would say so. creatively quite the exercise and I love it. I think it's hilarious and so much fun because they just, they have, they cram every possible nook of every genre into pop songs and it's just, it's a roller coaster ride. So, so yeah, I mean, I've got, that's another great thing about Tupelo is it allowed me to establish relationship, relationships with uh, my publisher who I've been with for a long time now. We've had a lot of wins together, whether it's Tupelo Honey or song pitches or country stuff that I'm doing. So. Shout out to Red Brick. Yeah, Red Brick Songs. Yeah. Um, yeah, man. So, I mean, your original question, you're talking about the things that I've noticed um, in the shift in in the vibe between rock and country. Yeah. The, the the biggest thing I noticed coming over to country was the fans. Um, it's not what I what I loved about it is in many ways I don't feel like I'm my show is much different than than I would have done in Tupelo. It's still it's a little less like arms crossed tough guy, but it's uh it's it's at its root there's the same energy to it. And you know I have two of the guys from Tupelo Honey with me still that are playing today. But the fans, what I really noticed is towards the end of Tupelo it was the the sort of the hipster era in Canada was just starting to come in so people were really mm-hmm. cool in the audience all of a sudden and afraid to have fun um which is I think has kind of subsided now what I'm thankful for but in country I just felt like no one cared about being cool they're all there to have fun and to sing along and just have a good time and the audience was what the oh, I noticed this right away too instead of the audience being like 20 to 27 the audience was 16 to 90 like it was right crazy and they're sometimes sometimes three to 90 you know like you've got those festivals where you've got little kids running around in the front and you know sitting on mom and dad's shoulders as they're watching you perform and then you've got you know uh, elderly folks there it's yeah it's it's super cool country music festivals are just like such an interesting case study and people watching there's, and, so much, um, there's something for everyone, really. You know, you go to the beer gardens on, on, say, like a Big Valley or, you know, Dauphin Country Fest or whatever, and it's a much different, it's got that rock and roll kind of yes, vibe to it. But yes. you can you can find out you, there's something for everyone in these country festivals. And that that's really cool to me as a person that's trying to grow as a songwriter now into my mid, probably wrong side of mid-30s here. It's, uh, <laughs> it's something that I'm like, oh, okay, cool. Like, this is a genre that I can continue to not have to be a cool 20 year old sleeping in a van, eating pepperoni and chocolate milk all day long. No. And, and the great thing about country music is that it is very inclusive and um, you know, you're right. Like you can have, you know, you can be a George Strait or an Alan Jackson, you know, 60 years of age. And, and if you put out the right record, you could still have a hit, but at the very least you're going to play sold out shows as often as you want to play them. You know, which is yeah. really why we're doing all this. this. Is why we're putting out content. It's, it's it's a good reminder for my clients. I'm like, the reason we put out great content is so that you can sell four to six thousand tickets or more. Obviously, but if we're yeah. in the building phases, that that's the goal. That's what we're all gunning for. You know, the content is somewhat malleable, right? You can take different creative directions, but as long as you build an audience that's loyal and will reach into their pocket and grab $39 to go see you on a Friday night, then you're killing it. 
Yeah, you know, and you know, there's a great example of that, and I always look up to him is Corb Lund. Like, what an interesting career. You know, he, does, he doesn't really have mainstream support, really. He's not, he's, he hasn't had a song on commercial country radio forever, but over it a decade. Matter. Yeah, it yeah. doesn't matter because he still sells 4,000 tickets in Edmonton for, I don't know, in other markets, but like, and his fans are rabid and they all buy merch and they all just like, they're, they're desperate to see what's next for him. And I think, yeah, he's created somewhat of a cult following. Yeah. And I love that engagement from fans. And it's always something like, okay, what's my version of that? How do I, how do I get there? Right. So he's been, been an interesting model as somebody that has forged his own path. I, I think that's really cool. But you know, what's so funny, like back to the, the, the transition from country to or from rock to country is that Corb is a great example of that too. Like his, the smalls were a punk rock band that all my friends thought were super cool in high school. And uh, seeing where he ended up is, is really interesting. And I'm finding that the more I meet people and, and get into songwriting situations and stuff, there's a lot of strange connections in this music world that I, I just love. Like when I was in England uh, over this last summer, I suppose um, I was writing with this guy over there and we were trying to write some country music. Cause they're like, there's a few country writers that are really doing some stuff. And, and this guy named Dan Weller I was working with, and, and he had this, strange connection to the guitar player for florida georgia line and i was like oh that's cool you have a connection to nashville and to sort of my world but the more we got talking i found out that he had somewhat of a similar experience on a, a grander scale he was in like a a metal band for years like a very popular metal band in europe they used to tour with like slipknot and they could these guys could headline in south africa and they'd play in like malaysia with slayer and stuff like that and um and we just we just hit it off because we found some parallels between our worlds and and sort of country was the 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 big thing that united us later in life and now we we work together on a lot of stuff we're working on Clayton Bellamy's record together and it's it's just so so crazy that's one thing I just love about the industry and what I've loved about my journey from rock to country is just finding all these little interconnections with so many people that I've I've met along the way. Well, you know the the word authentic is so overused it's almost a cliche but the truth of it is it, it doesn't necessarily align in terms of fidelity with a format it's deeper than that right you're an example of that corb lund is a perfect example of that like there's there's something about corb no matter what music he decides to put out that still resonates because whether or not it fits on country radio or, or punk rock radio it's still coming from the soul there's something deeper than a format that defines authenticity, right? And and it's, it's why certain types of artists can, you know, sort of slide back and forth between genres. It's because whatever it is that's coming out of them, it's real and people just identify that and they don't really give a shit what the packaging looks like. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's not always easy to get there. I think it's, uh, it's tough when you're going upstream sometimes, I think, but yeah, super big respect to anybody that that finds their way doing their own thing. It's it's pretty respectable. I just I it pumps me up every time I see it. So creatively, you've got a lot on the go. You're obviously a committed husband and father and uh uh you've got a lot in your world going on, but um when are you going to start the Dan Davidson podcast? Cuz I think you're a natural <laughs> and I think you should do it. Uh, that I thought about it. Yeah, I don't know. I I guess, you know, like as I'm sure you know and I've seen it's all about consistency, right? So it's uh, making sure you're on it, doing lots of them all the time. So I think you know what uh, the secret is. What's that? You know what you know what the secret is in terms of consistency. Don't announce it or start it until you have six or seven in the can. 
Right. That that's that's my that's my recommendation for people. You want to start a podcast, get ahead of it a little bit. Um, you know, as long doing, as you're are not you doing one, are you doing one every day or when, like how, how often you feel? No, we're dropping them once a week. So we drop a podcast every Monday, but, but what I do is I, I pre-record them like you and I are doing today. And it's, uh, what November 24th today, 25th. Um, and this is going to air, uh, around December 22nd. So, you know, I'm, I'm building them out so that I'm not in a position where I'm reactive and scrambling for a guest week to week. Right. And, right. and luckily we're covering subjects that aren't necessarily hot button um, current events issues. Like we're talking about the music business, which yes, there's some current events in there, but you know, generally we get a little bit of forgiveness from the audience and uh, I'm a big proponent. Maybe I'm going to start, a, you want to start a podcast. Don't talk about it. Don't promo it. Just get six or seven in the can and then promo the shit out of your first episode and start rolling them out. You'll always be ahead of it. Yeah, I, I think it's a really interesting world, isn't it? It took me forever to understand the concept of podcast for some reason. Like it's, and now I just think it's like this is amazing. It's AM radio, but on demand and only the stuff that you want to see. So I think that's so cool. Like I'm just so deep into a few podcasts now, and it's it's really interesting. You know, there's what are some of your favorites? Uh, well, this one I re I started listening to was uh that Dax Shepard one, the armchair cynic or whatever. He had David Ferrier on that guy who did Dark Tourist and and all this stuff, and he had this great take on conspiracy theorists and and what drives them. And I thought it was so interesting. So that kind of opened the door for for me to dive into the Dax one a little bit, and obviously the Joe Rogan one, Oprah for men. <laughs> it's as it's been called. <laughs> uh. Yeah, that it's, he's got such great guests too. Like it's everything from you know scientists and crazy people and musicians and fighters, and it's just it, it's something. I don't yeah, know, it's I always all find over the board. There. But you know what's and actually really all... cool? There's a what, what's that? There was one I was going to tell you about that. So I'm a bit of a history nerd. I, for some reason, I think it just really. I don't know. It's really entertaining to me. So there's one I found called Cool Canadian History, and they're just short podcasts. But turns out the guy that does these podcasts, David Boris, um, I was like, "What? How do I know this guy's voice?" And I'd written with him in Nashville. He's a songwriter part time. No way. Half of the year he spends as a songwriter. Half of the year he spends as a history professor at UBC. So I've like dived into this cool Canadian history thing. Crushed like six hundred episodes of that. <laughs> so it's pretty cool. I'm gonna get into that one. Well, listen, man. It's been a pleasure having you on. It's always great to connect with you. Congratulations on all your success so far and grinding it out the way you have. And uh, best of luck in the future, brother. And I'm looking forward Thanks, to that Jeff. podcast if you ever get it rolling. All right. You can be the first guest. Love it. <laughs> I'm in. All right, buddy. Thanks for having me, man. Thanks, Dan. Talk to you later.